Welcome to the Press On Podcast. Expect to be inspired, challenged, and strengthened. In this episode, we'll hear from Karim Ram on the hope of Israel. Have you seen their faces? Have you heard their stories? On October the 7th, 2023, nearly 1,200 people were massacred by Hamas in southern Israel. Men, women, children, and babies at home, in their beds, on the street. Many at a music festival, peaceniks and soldiers. We know the faces of many of the victims and have heard their stories with lives, families and values that we would recognise here in the West. Reasonable, peaceful people, loving life and wishing to find an even-handed accommodation with their Palestinian neighbours. The violence was shocking, designed to provoke, reminiscent of a medieval pogrom. It will go down as one of the most brutal terrorist atrocities in its history. Its effects, every bit as traumatic for the people of Israel as the 9-11 attacks were for the US. And in reprisal, Israel launched a special military operation in Gaza to destroy Hamas and free the hostages. Since then, more than 25,000 people in Gaza have been killed, with more than 63,000 wounded. Gaza is one of the most densely populated places in the world. The Norwegian Refugee Council described it as the world's largest open-air prison. UN officials have said that 1.9 million people, over 85% of Gaza's population, are internally displaced, with conditions in the ever-shrinking southern area of the Gaza Strip becoming ever more apocalyptic. More than half of its northern civilian infrastructure, including houses, schools, hospitals, mosques, bakeries, water pipes, sewage and power networks have been destroyed. At the time of writing, the Israeli government has just announced its decision to extend the action to central Gaza and says that its operation will continue for several months despite international pressure. I have to admit that I haven't seen the faces of the Palestinian victims or know their stories. And I'm not sure that their lives or beliefs correspond to those that I've ascribed to the Israelis. Or at least, that's what I've been led to believe. And I have to confess to being relatively ignorant, perhaps willingly so, of the situation for the Palestinian people in Gaza and the West Bank. Ignorance fueled by the story I told myself about the return of the Jewish people to their ancient homeland as the fulfilment of Bible prophecy. A story I still believe to be true, but now I find myself questioning some of the assumptions I'd made in tidily airbrushing the Palestinians out of the way, as though they were like the idolatrous tribes of Canaan that Israel conquered in the book of Joshua. As though in the fullness of time, God hadn't sent his son into the world and 2,000 years of history hadn't happened since then, as though God was still only concerned with groups and not individuals from all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues. So the question is, how do you feel? Are you Team Israel? 
or Team Gaza? Are you naturally sympathetic to the plight of the Jewish people because of their place in God's purpose? Because salvation is of the Jews? Or have you suffered a, a moral injury that the people who've known persecution for the last 2,000 years have now inflicted the same suffering on the people of Gaza and the West Bank? But they've forgotten the injunction to love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I won't entertain the thought that any rational or sane person might be feeling glee at the collective suffering of Israelis and Palestinians because this heralds the time of the end and the return of Christ. I'm well aware of those who sit as armchair spectators, happy to believe that the judgments of God will fall on everybody else whilst they enjoy the best seat in the house waiting for the rapture. So let me rephrase the question. As a, as a Bible-believing Christian looking for the return of Christ, what's your reaction to all of this? Is it a, a grim sense of inevitability? Satisfaction even? That this is the way it has to be? Because of the particular story we have told ourselves, the story in which Israel stands alone against its enemies and in that moment of self-realization turns to God, who then saves them with the return of Christ and inaugurates the kingdom of God amongst the surviving wreckage of humanity. But is it possible that God, our Heavenly Father, may actually have a, a different view of all of this, that he may be working to a, a different story, that his program isn't, in fact, some grand nationalistic prophetic clockwork that will grind thousands, nay, millions of people between its gears as it ticks remorselessly onto midnight. But as we've seen from other parts of Scripture, God's program is at the very least based on a different set of assumptions and may even be subject to alteration because God so loved the world. The hope of Israel. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We are the only species on this planet, as far as I am aware, that tell each other stories and live by stories. 
We make sense of the world through stories. They bring us comfort. We are the only species that will kill each other for our stories. For what are history, nationalism and religion, if not stories? Prophecy is a story about the future. So how do you cope with life when the story isn't correct? Christ? Messiah? King of the Jews? The one who would redeem Israel from Roman occupation? The hope of Israel? Crucified and buried. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. The experience of Cleopas and his companion on the, the road to Emmaus after the resurrection of Jesus in Luke 24 is perhaps the most transformational journey in history. Stories can cloud our vision. In fact, they can prevent us from seeing the truth. This is a Jesus they didn't recognise who comes alongside them, a Jesus that they didn't know. The desire for liberation from Rome trumped everything. Even the testimony of the women who went to the tomb is questioned because if you've already got a story inside your head, it's very difficult to hear a new one. It's hard to fill a cup that's already full. That's why our stranger rebuked them. O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. A different story. Our stranger told them a different story based on the same scriptures. That when God made promises to Abraham, the good news, the gospel preached to him was the promise that through his seed, all the families of the earth, Jews and Gentiles will be blessed. That the land was promised to the seed, that the seed was Christ. That he was before Abraham, that Abraham rejoiced to see his day and saw it and was glad but he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. But Abraham knew that God would provide his own sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of the Spirit for all nations, tongues and tribes. Yes, and that God delivered his people from their captivity. The night they killed the Passover lamb and the firstborn died. That they crossed the Red Sea and were baptised as they left their bondage. That he ascended on high and led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. But it was Joshua and not Moses who led Israel into the promised land by faith, by trusting in God. That God, when David had asked to find him a dwelling, promised him the seed who would sit on God's right hand, who David called Lord, in whom the Gentiles would trust. That he was the Lord's anointed, the Son of God, and that he would not see corruption, because God would raise him from the dead. That Isaiah spoke of him when he saw his glory high and lifted up, as a life-giving spirit, 
sitting on a throne, the beginning and the end of God's purpose, the last Adam. But Ezekiel saw him too, enthroned above the cherubim of glory, surrounded by the sign of God's mercy to every living creature. But he would not destroy the earth again, because they had polluted it with blood. But the prophet Jonah, who was so reluctant to go and preach in Nineveh, was assigned to Israel after spending three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. But he had to learn that God didn't just care for the people of Israel, but Nineveh too, and their cattle, because God does not take pleasure in the death of any who die, not even the wicked, but wants them to have a new heart and spirit. And so God promised a new covenant in which he would write the law into their minds and inward parts so that they could be born from above. A covenant that had to be dedicated by a greater sacrifice than that of animals. A sacrifice that God himself would provide. And so the stories went on. But that these were the history of salvation and not the land or holy places or even nationalism. Metaphors, echoes and promises of a much greater salvation to come. What did Cleopas and his companion think as they heard this stranger talk so persuasively and with such passion? As he opened the scriptures to them and their hearts burned within them. And when Jesus was known to them in the breaking of bread, would they even have been able to grasp the thought that something altogether bigger and more wonderful was happening? That God was indeed working a strange work in their days that they'd never considered. They rushed back to Jerusalem, finding the eleven, and Jesus appeared to them again, this time unmistakably him. And then he told them again that his sufferings were part of a much bigger story, a bigger plan that involved all nations, and that they had to wait in Jerusalem until they received the promise of his Father, that the gift of the Spirit would be poured out on Jews and Gentiles through faith in him. What a transition to make in less than a day, in little more than seven miles, that the Gentiles whom they hated would become their fellow heirs, their brothers and sisters in salvation, not of Israel from Rome, but the whole world from sin. The promise of the Father. The story that Jesus had been telling them all through his ministry had been a very different one. Jesus was never the revolutionary leader they wanted. He didn't promise them deliverance from Rome or their own oppressive rulers, despite the fact that most ordinary people were living hand to mouth under the collective burden of tribute, taxes and offerings. The indebtedness of small farmers and expropriation of their land were hallmarks of this Roman epoch. In 4 BC, when Herod I died after a long and oppressive rule, there was a general revolt in Galilee in Judea, with royal fortresses and storehouses being attacked and raided, as desperate people sought to take back goods that had been seized from them. This revolt was 
brutally crushed by the Romans, with the crucifixion of thousands in the general area around Nazareth before Jesus came to live there as a child. We cannot imagine the collective trauma of village communities pillaged and burned, with family members slaughtered and enslaved. First century Galilee was a deeply troubled place. Events like these leave a, a deep and lasting impression in the collective memory of the people. You can see it in the story of Jesus' return to Nazareth after his baptism and temptations in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. Here, on the Sabbath, Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah, announcing himself as the hope of Israel by proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour. That special time when debts were cancelled, land was returned to its original owners, and slaves were freed. A year of jubilee. This would have been deeply significant to those who heard him, along with all the blessings he announced on the poor, the broken-hearted, the enslaved, the blind and oppressed. These were the resonant words of grace they marvelled at. But Jubilee wasn't just a case of receiving divine grace. It was also a demand to forgive and remit the debts of others. Jesus' appearance at the synagogue in Nazareth didn't end well when he excoriated them for their lack of faith and told them a different story. But foreigners had been more prepared to hear the word of God than Israel. Evidently, their sufferings weren't enough to entitle them in the eyes of Jesus. It's a testament to just how visceral their hatred of the Gentiles was that they were prepared to take Joseph's son, whom they'd known from childhood, and push him off a cliff. It's always easy to blame others for our own problems. Jesus' diagnosis of their problems was radically different to their own. He told them that they had to be born again. They wanted to change the world around them, the system, their situation, to kick the Romans out. This is what we all want. The good news that Jesus taught was that God wanted to change them. He wants to change us too. He wants us all to be born from above. Israel, the Jewish people, the Romans, Samaritans, Palestinians, the whole world in fact. If we want the world to be different, we have to be different first. Jesus had been telling them this story all the way through his ministry. But the problem is, if you've already got a story inside your head, it's very difficult to hear a new one. It's hard to fill a cup that's already full. This is how the, the story that Jesus told them right at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 5 began. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
these are the Beatitudes or the, the blessings from the Sermon on the Mount. The word blessed means favoured, fortunate, happy, or even congratulated. What Jesus was saying is that these are the people that God has favoured. They begin and end with the same blessing, that theirs is the kingdom of God. You can see that they're divided into two groups. The first four, poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek and the hungry, who are unhappy with themselves or their situations, and the second four beatitudes, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers and persecuted, who represent what they and what we have to become. The journey that the broken, grieving and powerless have to make is not to one of being powerful, victorious and triumphant, but rather to that of being compassionate, innocent and peacemakers. Rather than seeking justice, they have to practice justice by being right with God. This is the journey we all have to make, no matter who we are. This was the good news that Jesus taught, a vision of the kingdom of God that turned everything that Rome stood for upside down. It remains the most radical program in history, that of remaking humanity in the image of God. Jesus was a, a revolutionary of the heart, and so he could not avoid facing his own human condition, since in the midst of his own struggle for a new world, he found that he was fighting his own fears and false ambitions, his own nature, which he put to death on the cross. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? That's why Jesus told Nicodemus that Jewishness wasn't enough. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. All the New Testament writers came to appreciate this. Their attitude to the Gentiles became radically different. Many other Jewish believers struggled with it. How can they be the same as us without being circumcised? They had to relearn their own story, their own history, but it was only through faith, by trusting in God like Abraham, that they could receive the promise of the Spirit and become the children of God. Saul's worldview was dramatically shattered on the Damascus Road, so that for three days he neither ate or drank, but prayed. He had to unlearn everything, because you can't fill a cup that's already full. Later in Ephesians, Paul would write, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. God gave gifts to men. Not a free, independent Jewish state, but the promise of the Holy Spirit. The psalm Paul quotes is actually about the giving of the law at Sinai 50 days, 
after the Passover in Egypt. Not only was Jesus raised from the dead by the glory of the Father at Passover, but the Holy Spirit was outpoured 50 days after the resurrection in Jerusalem. Peter witnessed the same gift fall on Cornelius, a Roman centurion and those with him. These events demonstrated that the gift of the new covenant, the, the promise of the Father, was the Spirit of God to Jews and Gentiles so that they could be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is how salvation works for both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus offered Israel the possibility of a personal relationship with God as their heavenly father, a tangible reality rather than just an idea. The coming of Jesus was the age of majority for the Jewish people. Whereas the old Sinai covenant had had the effect of infantilizing them, the new covenant was a covenant of the spirit so that they could share the same DNA, the same characteristics, the same Holy Spirit as God. This is what Paul meant when he said, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The wisdom from above. After nearly 2,000 years of exile, the Jewish people returned to their ancient homeland and refounded the state of Israel. Many Bible students had expected this, even that they would return in a state of unbelief. That, as the prophet Ezekiel foresaw, the dry bones would be reconstituted again. Jesus himself predicted that the times of the Gentiles would end before his second coming. The question is that having returned to the land, how do we see events playing out? 2,000 years have elapsed and the world around Israel has profoundly changed. The gospel has been preached to every nation and there are now three traditions that claim to be descended from Abraham, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Abraham's name is truly great. 2,000 years may have gone by, but the same feelings of existential uncertainty remain for Israel. Since its re-establishment, Israel has fought nine wars with its neighbours. The conflict over the possession of the land has been radicalised by religion and its stories. Hamas on the one side and religious Jewish settlers on the other, who see no place for each other either in their stories or in their land. There is a, a depressing 
predictability to what's currently happening in the Middle East. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Something that Jesus warned about in the Sermon on the Mount. Israel under Roman occupation was the original context of those words. If you live like that, the whole world ends up blind and the whole world ends up toothless. But how do you break the cycle of violence? Do we wish to? Jesus didn't lead a violent revolt against the Roman Empire. He didn't attack other religions. He criticised his fellow Jews for their hypocrisy and taught his disciples to be meek, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to love their enemies, to lose their lives and to take up the cross. In Jesus' day, Galilean and Judean resentment was not just directed towards the Romans and their collaborators, but also toward the Samaritans as well, who claimed a more authentic tradition, rivaling the one centred on the Jerusalem temple. But rather than attacking them, Jesus taught them that you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Worshipping in spirit and in truth is not about tribal alliances. He offered them living water rather than the temporary satisfaction of Jacob's well. He used a Samaritan and not a fellow Jew to exemplify compassion to anyone in need. Compassion is an expression of God's character, his name, and along with his graciousness and steadfast love, the basis of God's purpose with humanity. Judaism, Christianity and Islam all recognise the name, attributes or character of God. What separates these religions is their confessional events or stories. But all three would agree, for instance, that in the days of Noah, the divine reaction to the earth being filled with violence and corruption was one of profound grief. Because all human life is sanctified through the image of God. How can these three traditions that espouse the same core ideals be so indifferent to the value of each other's lives? That being the case, what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness in the reading of the scriptures and in the situation that confronts Israel today? Can we simply divide the world into light and dark along tribal and national lines. Particularly when Jesus told Nicodemus, the most devout Jewish representative of his day, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the Apostle Paul wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What should we? be praying for. The same offer that God made the Jewish people 2,000 years ago is even more urgent and pressing now. The possibility of a grown-up and personal relationship with God as their Heavenly Father. A tangible reality rather than just an idea. Only by becoming a child of God can you inherit the kingdom. This is what Jesus taught when he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed 
are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This wisdom that comes from above was embodied by Jesus himself. James refers to this in his letter when directing his readers' minds to Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. These things are the very life of God himself. That's why they are referred to as the wisdom from above, or God's Holy Spirit, the antithesis of earthly, sensual, and demonic wisdom that comes from the desires that rage in our members. There is a decisive choice presented here in James and in Jesus' teaching, a choice that can lead us to life or destruction. The narrow way that leads to life is a difficult path, which is why most would rather take the broad way and consign the teachings of Jesus to the realm of the unattainable, naive or idealistic. And yet, it seems that the spiritual realism of the Sermon on the Mount is exactly what Israel and the whole world needs right now, what it has always needed. Not creedal Christianity, not formal religion, not just believing in God, but trusting God. This is what building on the rock means, hearing and living. The moment of crisis is the real test of who we are, whether we are born from above or beneath, rooted in rock or sand. We can all do the right thing when things are calm, but the real challenge is when our worlds are falling apart around us. This is why we need to pray for the wisdom that comes from above. The one thing that humanity lacks that we all lack is wisdom. <laughs> do we suffer from such an an abundance, such an excess of wisdom that we can afford not to pray for it. Do we doubt that our Heavenly Father would do this for us if we ask him in faith? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, 
and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus believed profoundly in the generosity of his heavenly Father. Does his spirit cry out in our hearts, Abba, Father? It should. Because the Apostle Paul goes so far as to say, now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. Jesus' summons to ask, seek and knock through prayer and faith is an urgent and pressing one. Let us dethrone ourselves and enthrone God. Let us empty the cup and refill it. He offers us living water and not Jacob's well, bread and not stones. All he asks is that we be generous to others in return. Perhaps we should actually believe the stories that Jesus taught us and that he and not the land was always the hope of Israel. A prayer for Israel. Our hearts, desire and prayer to God for Israel should be that they may be saved that they should have a new heart and spirit, that they should become sons and daughters of the living God. Because if their fall led to the enrichments of the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? If their being cast away was the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So let us pray that whatever lies ahead, as the whole creation groans and labours in travail, that the days are shortened and that all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Press On podcast. You've been listening to Karam Ram. For more, you can visit pressonjournal.org.